Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gifts that you bestowed upon Johnny. May just remind you that he's amongst friends this evening. May we just have ears to hear your word unpacked for us. I thank you for this. We thank you for this evening and all glory and honor and praise in your name. Amen. Hey, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Um, as Rob said, my name is Johnny. I work at Moreland's Bible College where I was a student about 10 years ago. Um, and uh, maybe you're new to the church, maybe you're sort of unfamiliar and this is kind of your first evening service. Um, maybe you don't realize that uh, SML has a long history um, of supporting Moreland's in various different ways. And actually there are Moreland students among you uh, and um, or Moreland's graduates as well. So um, just to start off with, because I'm aware there's at least a couple. If you're a Moreland's graduate, give us a little whoop. Okay, there's a few. You see, there's a few of you around. Uh, and uh, throughout, the, um, throughout the, the church and different services, I know that there are more as well. So first of all, thank you for the support that you offer. Um, but also, uh, our heart is to equip people passionate about Jesus to make an impact in the church and world. And so um, if that's you, and that doesn't have to be going into church ministry or speaking or youth work or kids work, it could be a whole variety of different things. Um, if that is you and you're interested in pursuing something like that, um, we'd love to have a conversation with you, or Rob would love to have a conversation with you as well. Uh, to let, a little, uh, let you know a little bit more uh, about how your journey might work at Moreland's College. Um, it's a Bible college on your doorstep as well. Um, we lead the way in a whole bunch of different ways in terms of ministry training, and so uh, to have it in the comfort of Dorset um, is, is great. Um, what I said earlier as well in terms of that wedding, I, I come from Suffolk, that's where um, I grew up, that's where I did a whole bunch of ministry before returning to work at Moreland's. Uh, and I actually returned to Suffolk a few weeks ago, um, back to the church that I was previously part of, just to, to say hello and, uh, and see some friends, and, and actually, most importantly, seeing two of the people that I love most in the world, which are my two godsons. Um, this is Finn and Riley, they're going to come up on the screen, hopefully, if we can have that. Um, this is Finn and Riley, they're not normally that squashed, um, but that's um, but that's them. Um, their heads are slightly more round than that. Um, but Finn and Riley, uh, Finn's nine, Riley's seven, that's them out in the, uh, the lovely south coast. Um, and I have the joy of being their godfather. Um, I say joy because for me, being a godfather has all of the benefits of being a parent, but without any of the sleep deprivation or responsibility. Um, so for example, there are a whole bunch of things that I do, because I kind of see it as my God-given right as much as anything else, to wind their parents up as much as I possibly can. Um, so for example, we'll be around the dinner table, and you know, Dave and Em, their parents are trying to teach them you know, good manners and you know, how to use cutlery and things like that, and I'll be like, boys, who can burp the loudest? Uh, and it'll kind of wind them up a little bit. Um, I taught Finn on his fifth birthday, this is one of my favorite things that I did, uh, on his fifth birthday, you know when he starts going to school and interacting with lots of others, I said, Finn, now you're five, the magic word changes. Because you know when someone says, what's the magic word? And it's please and thank you. I said, the magic word changes. Now you're five. The magic word is now. Uh, and just thought that's a lovely time bomb just to like let him go off with. And one day his teachers are going to say, oh, what's the magic word? And he's going to go, now. Uh, and I thought that was quite funny. Um, and so his parents didn't, but it's kind of become an on-running joke. One of the other on-running jokes that uh, I have with Finn and Riley uh, is a line that has kind of come uh, you know, really quite early on that we kind of joke about a lot, uh, is that Uncle Johnny is always right. Uncle Johnny is always, why should you support Liverpool over Manchester United? Because Uncle Johnny said Manchester United were the rubbishest, worst ever, uh, you know, worst team. Liverpool are the best team. Uncle Johnny is always right. We should always do what Uncle Johnny says. Uh, and that winds their parents up as well. Uh, and it's kind of come this on-running joke. Uncle Johnny's always right. Uncle Johnny's always right. And it is a joke because it is so obviously wrong. <laughs> 
It's such an obviously wrong thing. In fact, uh, a line that, you know, Uncle Johnny is always right, it's far less that in my brain, far more uh, often, the line that goes through my head is, am I always right? Or am I right at all? Like, did I deal with that correctly? Did I, did I handle that in the way in which I should? Like, did that go the way I planned? Was I a bit too defensive there? Um, I was driving back from Oxford to Bournemouth the other week, uh, and as I was driving, thankfully I wasn't in a rush or anything like that, but there was this car in front of me and the back wheel kind of blown out, and it was like really flat, and there was kind of stuff coming out of the back of the car. Uh, and the woman who was driving, who was there with her daughter, uh, obviously just had no idea. So I tried to drive up next to it, and I was kind of like pointing at the back of their car, being like, your tire's out, your tire's out. And eventually she realized that something was wrong, so she pulled over, and I pulled over with them, and I got out of the car and I said, listen, your tire's flat. If you don't sort this out, you're going to have to go to the garage, it's going to cost you a whole bunch more, um, you might cause an accident, like you really want to change your tyre now. And she said she'd call the AA, and I said, listen, if you've got a spare tyre, I know how to change a tyre, I can change the tyre for you. And she showed me the tyre, and I changed the tyre, and let me tell you, I felt like the man. Like, guys, do you ever take the bins out and just think, what would this house do without me? That's how I felt, right? I just felt, I was like, I am, they're here, I just changed the tyre, I took the thing off, I put it back on again, I screwed it up, and she was like, thank you so much. Can I pay you? And I said, like, no, no, can I pray for you? And I was like, this is the, I feel like the man. And then I drove off and just thought, I am such a good guy. And I wanted to tell you that story just to tell you that, that I am just so, I am so right. I am so good. In fact, I am so good that on that same journey home, I waved down a BMW driver to let him know that his indicator wasn't working with a slightly different hand gesture. And he obviously knew that his indicator wasn't working because he gave me that same hand gesture back. <laughs> And it kind of left me with this question that kind of revealed something about me, which is, what does it mean to be a good person? Like, am I right? Because there's so many times where I seem to have my foot placed in both camps. What does it mean to be a good person? Uh, we probably don't put that, you know, um, uh, we don't articulate that question all that well, or perhaps that clearly in many situations that we go about. But we probably ask that question more than we think in areas of comfort and, and, and often behind a TV screen where we quite like wrestling with that question a little bit. When we're watching news debates or debates on YouTube, perhaps, uh, even when we see sports columns, uh, maybe it's um, gossip magazines or um, reality television, or maybe it's something on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, where we start to see some of the culture wars, and we're like, well, what does it mean to be good? Who's right? Who's wrong? And we find it fun because it's kind of real enough because it's out there, but we're distant enough from it because it's behind a screen, and we watch it from the same sofas and chairs that we watch our reality TV shows from. What does it mean to be good? Who's right? Who's wrong? The problem comes in, though, as we approach the muddy water in front of us, as we're confronted with that question in our own lives when we suddenly face people with different values to us, maybe. Or maybe we do something that compromises on the values that we set. Or maybe the table of justice that we set out for others and we like to gossip about others uh, with. Whether it's just that one thing that raises its ugly head and we, we, all of a sudden we start to have excuses that channel the judgment that we'd have previously had for others. Hey, it was only this one time. Maybe it's a, a habit that's kind of slowly trickled in, and, and you look back on your own life and think, how did I get to this place? Because there was a time where I'd have never allowed myself to do what I now just do without really thinking about it. Uh, maybe we do something, we think, well, at least it's not X, Y, Z. At least it's not them. I haven't gone that far yet. 
All of a sudden, within this realm of rightness and wrongness and and goodness and badness, uh, we learn to excuse ourselves or explain ourselves or, or cover things up. And as we wrestle with who we are in the past, we're confronted with questions about who we are in the present. Am I raising them right? Have I got the right opinion around this? Uh, I mean, is it too late to apologize? Am I too far gone? Should should I pay that back now or should I pay that back later? Am I too far stuck in the mud? Am I in the right? It's a question that the philosophers of old have asked. Uh, Whether it's Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill utilitarianism or or Immanuel Kant's deontology or, uh, or Aristotle's virtue ethics. Uh, whether it's a, a whole variety of different worldviews that the world has tried to cling on to in the past, whether it be postmodernism or Marxism, socialism, fascism, uh, um, conservatism, liberalism, libertarianism, moral relativism, moral pluralism, veganism, all obviously have their downfalls, but all show something that's real and true that we all seek to go for, that somewhere out there, even though sometimes we struggle to define it, or even refine it, that there is something out there that is good and worth aiming for. And on the other side, that there is something that so often we hate and dislike and dis- uh, just get, fills us with distaste, and yet so often we embrace, which is evil. And somehow we have to try and reconcile the fact that we have a foot in both camps. And it leads us with the ultimate question of, where do I find my peace? How can I find my peace in all of this? Like, how can I live my life so that I, I don't have to keep on putting my head over each shoulder to make sure no one's looking? How can I live a life so that I don't have to wake up at night to make sure that no one's found out yet? How do I live my life so that I don't have to live by this table of reference that I've put together and I judge others by, yet secretly I know I cannot attain for myself? How do I find peace in all of those things? The good news is that right at the beginning of the story of Jesus that we find in the Gospels comes this ancient prophetic writing that's referred to by one of Jesus' followers who writes down his account called Matthew. He refers back to this ancient writing, this ancient prophecy that happened hundreds of years before that the people would have been familiar with and known with, and it would have shown them something of who Jesus is, and it would have answered some of this question that we still answer today of where is it that I find this peace? It's a question, oh sorry, it's a verse that's um, often shared around Christmas time, which makes this the earliest Christmas talk that I have ever done, and probably the earliest Christmas talk that you may have ever heard. And so if any of you are already itching to get your Christmas decorations up, this is your excuse. Go wild, go nuts, put the tree up. Um, but it's a verse that comes uh, years, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before. And ultimately, this is a prophecy or a prophetic bit of writing that uses the patterns of the past to show promises of the future. In fact, when you think about prophetic writing throughout the Bible, that's not a bad way to kind of look at it. Most prophetic writing uses patterns of the past to show promises of the future. And this moment, uh, this piece of writing that we heard read out earlier, and we're going to read it again in just a moment, this is a writing that as people would have read at the time of its writing, it would have um, brought up something within them and reminded them of something of their past to show them something of the future. It would have showed them something right at the beginning of the Bible in Eden. And it would have showed them some of those, uh, the most influential and significant moments in their nation's history. 
And it points forward all the way to Jesus and all that that means for us in 2023. Um, just as a bit of context before we jump uh, into the text that was read to us um, earlier, uh, we find ourselves in a part of Israel's history where there's uh, been this civil war between uh, Israel and Judah, uh, and uh, Israel have kind of teamed up with uh, another tribe, uh, another nation called Syria, and they're going to kind of come down and, and take over and invade uh, Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And so King Ahaz, who's the king of Jerusalem and Judah, he's obviously kind of scared about this and a little bit worried about this. And so he kind of freaks out and doesn't really know what to do. And so God speaks to the prophet Isaiah and he says, listen, I need you to go to King Ahaz and tell him, listen, this isn't going to happen. Not on my watch. I've got this in control. You don't need to worry. This isn't going to happen. It's going to be okay. And so Isaiah goes up to King Ahaz and says, listen, King Ahaz, it's all going to be fine. These two kings that are threatening to come and invade uh, Judah and Jerusalem, it's not going to happen. You don't need to worry. It's going to be okay. In fact, you can ask God for a sign, and he's going to show you that it's all going to be okay. Uh, and so Ahaz probably says the thing that we would probably say is the right thing, but for complex reasons is kind of the wrong thing. And he says, well, I don't want to test God. I'm not going to do that. And Isaiah, exhausted, says, oh, for goodness sake, if you're not going to ask, he's just going to give you one anyway. Here is the sign. And so he then says this. If we can have it on the screen. Here we go. All right, then. The Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. Yum. For before the child is that old, the, land, uh, the lands of these two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. And now we read this, we often read it at Christmas time because it talks about this virgin giving birth to a child and, and we know that this kind of looks forward to Jesus. Um, just as kind of a point and an off point, the word virgin there in the Hebrew is a word called Alma and actually at face value it probably translates far better into a, a phrase that says young woman. Uh, in fact it's used seven other times in the Bible and almost every other time it refers to a young woman. And so whilst it can be translated into virgin and it has been in this capacity, the people who would have been reading this for the first time, probably wouldn't have seen the word virgin and thought, oh, this is what it means. They would have probably thought, okay, a young woman's going to give birth, and before, uh, by the time this child is eating yogurt and honey, he's going to know the difference between right and wrong. There is something else of this verse that the people reading it for the first time would have seen, and it would have captured their imaginations, and it would have reminded them of a pattern of the past that was going to show them a promise of their future. The thing that would have captured their imaginations and it captured their minds was this phrase, yogurt and honey, or curdled milk and honey, as it perhaps would be more bluntly translated. Milk and honey. And maybe you haven't been to church many times, or uh, maybe this is even your first time today, and let me tell you, you are so welcome. You have chosen such a brilliant church. But even for you who perhaps hasn't come to church all that much before, that phrase, milk and honey, will stir something within you. Because we've all heard of that, that land of milk and honey, the promised land of milk and honey. It's a story that goes all the way back into Exodus, where the Israelites were slaves under the Egyptian people. And out of Egypt bring, uh, is brought Moses, and he's brought in front of this burning bush. And God says, listen, I've heard the cry of my people. And he says this to Mo uh, Moses. He says, I've um, come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of the land, a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You're welcome. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. There's this promise of a good and spacious land flowing of milk and honey. And then 10 plagues passed and, you know, there's the whole, like, let my people go. And the musical was made out of it. And eventually they cross the Red Sea. They go up to Mount Sinai. They receive the Ten Commandments. We love that bit of the story. And eventually they travel through the wilderness. And they're on the prefaces of this promised land that God had told Moses about. And Moses goes to some spies, because they had spies back then. And I just think that's cool. And he says, guys, I want you to go out into this promised land. And I want you to tell me a little bit about it. I want you to find out some things. In fact, he kind of has a list of things that he wants to know about this land flowing of milk and honey. He says this, so what is the land like? Um, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong and weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Uh, are they unwalled or are they fortified? And how's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees there or not? Do your best to go back and get some uh, fruit from the land. It was the season for the first grapes. And so the people go off, and it's almost like there's this, this tick list that they've gone off. And so this is their report after 40 days. They come back, uh, and this is their, the report that they give. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land uh, which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Woohoo! See, here is the fruit. But the people who live there, well, they're powerful. And you know, you asked us about how powerful they are. Yeah, well, well these, guys are, these guys are kind of powerful, Moses. And Moses says, okay, well, what about the cities? Are they right? And he says, well, the cities, they're fortified and they're very large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there. And then they kind of stop. It's almost like they have this checklist of things that they were supposed to say, but they miss one. You see, this is the checklist. It's like, are the people there strong and weak? It's like, yep. Lots of people there, really strong. Well, how about the cities? Yep, cities are there, really fortified. Tick. Well, how's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Like, are there trees or not? Yep, here's the grapes, here's the fruit, milk and honey, all good. But they kind of avoid something. They avoid saying whether it's good or bad. And, and, and so uh, one of the spies, he, he kind of comes up, Caleb, and he says, hey, guys, let's, let's go. I mean, we're told this is our land. This is the place in which we're supposed to be. This is the place in which God is leading us. This is the place in which we're supposed to inhabit. This is the place in which God has a plan for us where we're supposed to be following God's kingdom faithfully. But the people kind of had an issue, and, and they said, actually, no. In fact, they said this. The men who had gone up there said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. A bad, uh, a bad report. This was in direct contradiction to what God said. I mean, Moses already knew it was a good land. He was told all the way back when they were in Egypt, listen, this is going to be a good and spacious land, a tov land in the Hebrew. And now they're saying, no, this is a ra land in the Hebrew. Tov and Ra, Tov and Ra. We've heard this before, all the way back in, Egypt, um, in Eden, where there was a tree of Tov and Ra, a tree of good and evil. And there, in the middle of the garden, there was this tree, and Eve would go up to it with her husband, Adam, and they would pick from the tree, and they would eat from the tree. Adam and Eve, who would yada, they would know good and evil as a result. They would know good and evil, they would have experienced good and evil, but they did not have the ability to choose what was good over evil. And later on in the story, 
as sin would grow itself into different kingdoms and different structures, God's people would be on the prefaces of a land, another land, not Eden this time, but Canaan. And they had experienced evil in the land of Egypt. And they had experienced goodness as they traveled through the Red Sea under the safety of the hand of their God. And whilst they knew good and evil, they could not choose good or evil. They couldn't choose it. And so 700 years later, this story that would have almost been like a lullaby to the, uh, to the Israelites and, and those in Judah and those in Jerusalem, comes another time where the king Ahaz was under threat, where he didn't know what to do, where there was a fear over what to do. And Isaiah came and he says, listen, remember all those times in our past where we know good and evil? Like we know kind of intrinsically what's right and wrong and, and, and we know that there's values that we should go after and we, we sometimes don't get it right but, but, and we can't choose good and evil very well? Well, here's going to be the sign. A son's going to come. A child is going to be born. And before he even tastes milk and honey, he is going to do what we cannot do. He is going to be able to choose, not just know, not just yada, but choose good from evil. For each of us, we have a pattern of the past. We have a pattern of the past where, where we have a foot in both camps. And here, in this moment of prophecy, Isaiah is almost telling King Ahaz, and I think it speaks to us as well, that listen, there is a God who is with us, that when we draw near to our Father God in heaven, as we draw close to him, we find goodness. And it's not in an action, it's in a person. It's not in a do, it's in a who. That's where we find goodness. That's where we find life. That's where we find restoration. That's where we find peace. It's not in a who. I do, it's in a who. This is where we're going to find. This is where we're going to find peace. For so many of us, there will be areas of our life that we'll try and cling on to with everything that we have. The idea of giving all of that up to who God is is actually quite terrifying, whether it be finance or family or, or position or, or um, uh, habit or job or whatever it looks like. And for each of us, we kind of know that we come to church on Sundays and, you know, we pray prayer and we read our Bible enough so that we don't feel guilty if someone was to ask us. And, you know, we maybe even join a small group. But there are kind of things that we try and keep safe. And it's almost like there's this shelter that we try and put over it so that it doesn't have to get too religious. And, and, and maybe there's things that we kind of just kind of turn our head away from a little bit. And it maybe sometimes leads to a little bit of compromise, but that's okay because not many people know about it and other people do worse. And it goes back to all of those things where we get stuck in the, the mud and we're confronted with the question for ourselves again. Well, maybe if I just do it once, or, or I didn't really anticipate ever getting into this position, but, but I guess it's, it's here now. And at least it's not as bad as X, Y, and Z. And we've kind of learned over the years, as we, as, we, as we fear of giving everything over to who God is, we find ourselves in places that we didn't intend to be. Maybe it's not those things, but maybe there are things that we're kind of withholding and as we withhold them, the life that God wants to pour into us in those spheres, in those arenas, in those areas, is kind of lost. And for a while, there's kind of been an urge or a calling from God's personal presence, his Holy Spirit that says, listen, there's a conversation that, I, that you know that you've been needing to have. 
or there's a mission that I've been calling you to go to, or there's an adventure that you're supposed to be taking a step into, and, and it involves a bit of sacrifice, and it, it means dying to self, and it means actually doing perhaps some things that feel a little bit uncomfortable. Or maybe there's areas that you've kind of been flirting with a little bit just because everyone says it's okay, but in reality, you kind of have to make the brave step to say, listen, this makes me feel uncomfortable, and I don't really know why, but actually, my first response has to be following the way of my Father, because He is good, even when I don't know what is, even when I have a foot in both camps. The things that we fear the most tend to be the areas in which we trust God the least. The things that we fear the most tends to be the places in which we trust God the least. And God says, listen, I want you to draw close to me because as you find me, you realize that goodness and wholeness and peace is not just found in action, it's found in a person. It's found in a person who is able to choose good, not just know good. 700 years on after from Isaiah, there would be a moment that would change all of eternity that bases our whole faith into action and sets our whole faith on fire. The birth of Jesus. And as Matthew writes this account and is considering all the different ways in which he could tell people that the Son of God is born, he gives this line of David of whom King Ahaz was part of. He says, hey, look at all of these people who knew good but perhaps couldn't even choose good. This royal line which perhaps constantly let us down. And he says, listen, remember that prophecy? Remember that story? Well, that was kind of referring and pointing forward, not just looking back, back to different patterns of the past. And we find the verse in Matthew, if we can have it up, she will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from all of their sins. He won't just know how to choose, he will also be able to save, he will also be able to redeem. All this took place to fulfill the Lord, what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin the virgin will come, someone who will come, who is detached but also part of this line that came before, that will bring about a redemption from when the fruit was eaten by Eve and whereby she knew good and evil but could not choose good and evil. This virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Draw close, draw close, draw close. Our first response in areas where we're thinking, is this right or is this wrong? In the areas that offer genuine moral complexity where we don't know the answer, the areas in our life where we're really not sure where to go or what to do or who to speak to, our first response is to draw close to a Jesus. Jesus who came and drew close to us, who offered us salvation, who offers us redemption. Goodness is not just found in a do, but in a who. Not just found in an action, but in a person. And the places that we need to expose a little bit are the places that we fear the most, because it's the areas in which we trust God the least. Let me ask you a question. How am I committing everything to Jesus in the midst of pursuing what's right? How are we committing everything to Jesus in the pursuit of what's right. If I can invite the band uh, to, to come up, because I'm going to be closing in just a second, but um, uh, as Rob said earlier, I work for Moreland's Bible College. Now, 10 years ago, I was a student with Rob, and I can remember 10 years, it's kind of fun to kind of see the differences between what it was like then and what it is now, and, and how really nothing changes, and, uh, and all the goodness that goes on there, and seeing almost like a, a repeats of stories of goodness that were happening then that are now continuing to happen uh, through students uh, today. But I can remember being a student at the time, and, and, and no one really said it, but it was kind of this air that 
The students that were the most impressive, the people that you kind of wanted to be most like, were the people who kind of knew the most. Uh, the people who were able to articulate the best, who were able to kind of quote long scriptures or, or have theologies boxed up in brilliant packages that they were able to communicate with real panache. And it was kind of impressive, and, and those people would kind of, you'd want to draw around, and you kind of want to be like, and, and they seemed to have the right answers for everything. And those were brilliant, and, and they kind of committed themselves in all kinds of good ways, and, and I'm not putting that away at all. You know, but it's funny in coming back and actually being a staff member, and occasionally I get to uh, engage with students, and it's probably one of the best parts of my role in being able to do that. But, but it's funny now because the students that kind of impress me the most or the students that I look at and I'm like, man, I kind of want to be like that. Or, or you have that far better than I used to have that. Aren't necessarily the students who have been able to package everything up and get everything right and sort everything okay and, and get the best marks and essays or anything like that. It have been the students who have committed themselves the most to who Jesus is. The students who seem to know their Father in heaven so personally and so well, who commit themselves to the text, who invite the personal presence, the Holy Spirit to inhabit everything they do. They trust the story. And so let me ask you again to finish. How am I committing everything that I do to Jesus in the midst of pursuing what's right?